I want to start by inviting our children to Children's Church. Your teacher meets you in the back there. And uh, before we open the word, let me uh, start us in some prayer. Lord, it's tremendously good news that A, you don't change, and therefore we are not consumed. Lord, thank you for securing us in Christ so that we remain your people. And as we celebrate Advent, looking forward to and anticipating his birth, his coming, uh, Lord, I pray that we would have in our hearts a renewed wonder at the miracle of the incarnation, that God would become human and dwell among us. Uh, so, Lord, I pray that uh, your prophet would speak to us this morning, that uh, your spirit would apply it to our hearts, and that we as your people would respond appropriately in worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, Advent, we're going to look at, um, we're going to spend Advent with the minor prophets. So, why the minor prophets? Well, when we get to Christmas time, it's all about the major prophets. Uh, the, the virgin will conceive and bear a child, and his name will be Emmanuel. And I think sometimes we can kind of gloss over the minors as if they don't count. Uh, so if you're wondering about the graphic, why a bird wing? Um, it's because for that wing to operate, you need the big feathers, but you also need the little ones too. And so for us to get the fullness of God's revelation, we need the big prophets. We need Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, but we need the little ones as well. And, and um, I think often we just gloss over the minor prophets when we're reading because we don't understand them. We don't, their message always seems to be gloom and doom. And, and uh, so you kind of eyes glaze over and you just flip through them. And I, Good, I got that one done. Check that off. Um, so I thought maybe it'd be nice if we took a little time. We're going to look at just four uh, of the minor prophets. This week we're going to look at Malachi, and then we're going to look next week at Zechariah, and then Hosea, and then Micah. And look at how, what their message is, try to get who they are, what their message is. But the most important part is how are they anticipating Christ? Because we're standing on this side of the cross, so we've got the full story. We know what happened. But what about these minor prophets? What were they thinking at the time? How were they looking forward to God fulfilling these promises? And what promises did they understand? Uh, so I thought it would be kind of fun and helpful if we, uh, if we took a look at uh, these four, just picked four of them, kind of at random, um, but actually because they had some reference in there to the, the story of, of the gospel. Uh, so we're going to start with this man, Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. Um, who was Malachi and what's his story? Well, there's some dispute as to whether Malachi is his name or not, because Malachi in Hebrew means my messenger. So is he speaking of a man named Malachi? Was Malachi a shortening of Malachi, the messenger of the Lord? Or was this really a person named Malachi? And the question really comes up because in the section that Fernando read for us in chapter 3, it starts, behold, I will send my messenger, which in Hebrew is literally, behold, I will send Malachi. So some people say, well, see, this is, this is, not, this is an anonymous letter and it, it doesn't really have an author. Um, I spent a lot of time reading about this this week. There's plenty of ink spilled over this question. And basically what it comes down to is most of the ancient translations translate it as Malachi as a proper name. One or two translated as my messenger. So I think we're safe saying Malachi was his name. It's all right. Um, and, and this is the beginning of the letter, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So that's, that's what we're going to get. Now, who was he and what do we know about him? Almost nothing from the letter. There's just no biologic or biographical information in here, just his prophecy. So we don't get a whole bunch of details about who he was. But reading the letter overall, we can kind of get a flavor for when he probably lived. So just to recount Israel's history up to this point real quick, um, Moses led Israel out of Egypt. Joshua brought them into the promised land where they took the promised land and they settled it. And then after Joshua died, God appointed a series of judges. And judges weren't guys with black robes and gavels, um, and they weren't ladies on television um, named Judy. They were um, not just judges in the sense of making decisions, but they were also leading in military campaigns and things. So there's a series of judges. Um, they get progressively worse until we get to Samson, the worst of them all. And by the end of that cycle, we're just waiting for something better. There's got to be something better. And God responds by sending them a prophet, Samuel, 
And Samuel introduces the reign of the kings. Uh, the first king is Saul. He doesn't do too well. The second king is David, and David succeeds. David does extremely well because the Lord was with him, because David was a man after God's own heart. And so David secures the nation. He unites all the tribes. He moves the capital to Jerusalem, and he secures the borders. And towards the end of his life, he realizes, I'm dwelling in a nice house. God's still in a tent. I'm going to build a temple for God. And God comes to him and says, you're not because you're a man of blood, but your son will. And so David prepares everything he can. He gets everything ready for the arrival of the temple. And then Solomon, his son, takes over and builds the temple. Solomon takes the kingdom because David had secured it. He takes it into huge economic prosperity. It was an economic powerhouse in the Middle East at the time. People flowed through trading for them. They would buy horses and chariots from Egypt and sell them around the, the, um, the region, making profits. And under Solomon, the kingdom flourished. It was great. Solomon was blessed by God to be the wisest man ever. And his wisdom just was known everywhere. The queen of Sheba, who's south of Israel, down in Africa, comes to check out this wisdom. And she's amazed at what he can do. But even the wisest man in the whole world didn't do what God told him to do. He multiplied wives, he took foreign wives, and then he began to worship foreign gods. And so toward the end of his reign, God says, I'm going to rip the nation out of your hands, but not out of your hands, out of your sons. So his son takes over the throne after Solomon, and the people come to him and say, lighten our load. Your father worked us really hard. We built the temple. We built the palaces. We built the kingdom. We built the, the uh, storehouses. We built the, uh, the outpost to, to keep the kingdom secure. Now lighten our load. And the, the older men at the time tell him, do it. They will follow you to the ends of the earth if you do that for them. But instead, to fulfill God's promise, this fool listened to the young men who said, nah, put the screws to him. We can get more out of him. And so at that point, the, the nation rebels. The northern ten tribes split off and formed what became known as Israel. And the southern two tribes formed a country called Judah. And so from that point on, the kingdom's divided. And it doesn't go particularly well. There's a cycle of about 400 years with kings ruling. And in the north, they were always horrible. Never worshipped Yahweh, worshipped all the false gods, just never went well. The southern tribes, it was kind of on and off. So God raises up in the northern kingdom, above the northern kingdom up there, a, a place called Babylon. And he raises up a, a great, strong, mighty army called the Assyrians who come down and they take that ten, top ten tribes and they whisk them away and they're gone. And we don't see them again. They're just taken away. So all of that northern ten tribes is now gone. The southern two tribes hung on for a little bit longer, but the Assyrians fell to the Babylonians and a king named Nebuchadnezzar came down and he swept through and he took those southern tribes and took them into captivity, just as God had told him. Now, when that's happening, that's when you get people like Jeremiah prophesying, look, lay down your arms and submit to the king of Babylon because God's ordained this. And what happened was Jeremiah also told them, this captivity is only going to last 70 years and then you'll come back to the land. So there's 70 years where the nation is in captivity. At the end of that time, God raises up a new king, now no longer an Assyrian or a Babylonian. Now he's a Persian, because even that kept changing. And Cyrus said, decrees, I want the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple. This God needs to be worshipped. And so he sends the Jews back to Israel. And he says, rebuild the temple. And here's the money that you need. And here's the resources you need. And so a man named Ezra leads a group of exiles back to the promised land, back to Jerusalem, where he finds Jerusalem is a wreck. The walls are torn down. The temple has been just devastated. And so Ezra leads these people with the help of King Cyrus's money to rebuild the temple. And they get the temple stood up. They get it fairly well operating. And another man comes from the king as well named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah sets up the city walls. So this is the nation of Israel now. You've got Jews scattered in the outlying areas, just kind of barely hanging on. They're farming, they're, they're tending sheep. They're mixed with people from other nations that the king had sent into there because the king expects return on this investment. He wants, he wants stuff coming out of Israel. 
The city of Jerusalem has been set back up, but it's tottering. It's not doing particularly well. There aren't enough Jews to fill the city and the countryside. Because if you bring everybody in from the countryside, then there's no food. And if you send everybody out from the city into the countryside, then the, the city is going to be sacked again. So what happens is they wind up kind of spread thin in both areas, and they're just kind of hanging on. And so where Malachi shows up is he's probably a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah in that time of rebuilding the city, rebuilding the nation. Um, we don't know for sure because, like I said, he doesn't really say anything. He doesn't name any kings or anything, but there's a couple of hints. Uh, the first thing is he seems to have a lot of the same concerns that Nehemiah and Ezra had. You see, what Nehemiah and Ezra were doing is they were trying to reconstitute Israel. They were trying to rebuild the nation. So they're really concerned about things like, when you were in exile, did you marry foreign women? When you were in exile, did you get invested in this foreign nation? When you come back, are you going to be kind to your fellow Jews, or is this going to be a problem? So these were some of the issues that they faced, and Nehemiah and Ezra preached to the people and said, you can't be like this. And what we see in Malachi is he says a lot of the same things. The other big hint that's in Malachi is when he's talking to them about the offerings that they're giving in the temple. He says, you bring me your lame and your blind animals. And, and the law says not to do that. Would you try that with your governor? Go give him one of these lame animals and see what he says. Why would you do that to me then? But he uses the word governor. He doesn't talk about a king. He doesn't talk about foreign kings. There's a governor. And that's how Israel was reconstituted, was Babylon was still in charge. But they put a governor over top of it. And so those are some hints that say Malachi was probably after the construction of the temple because he talks about worship and still under the rule of the governor. And so that's probably the time period in there, right toward the end of the Old Testament story. Uh, so the way Malachi preaches is really kind of neat. I, I love his approach. He uses this conversational method where he'll have God say something, and then he'll have the people respond, and then God explains it. So it's this dialogue that goes on between God and, and the people. And he focuses on basically six disputations, six problems that God has with what's going on in the nation. And he structures his whole letter around those six things, and then at the end he has an epilogue where he kind of sums it all up and brings it together in, in a hopeful message. So the six disputations are, uh, he has a disputation about covenant love in one, two through five. He has a disputation about honoring God in uh, one, six through two, nine. He has a disputation about faithfulness in marriage in two, 10 through 16. He has a disputation about divine justice their understanding of divine justice in 2.17 through 3.5. He talks about tithing in 3.6 through 12, and then finally about fearing God in 3.7 through 4.3, and then the epilogue sums it up. You notice how rotten that lines up with chapter divisions? It's just terrible. <laughs> the, 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 uh, the Jewish version of this doesn't have a chapter 4, it just... Chapter 3 flows into that. And then some of the places they put the divisions, this is, these are times where you go, you know what? Chapters are not inspired, <laughs> and it's okay. It's good to remember what God said is inspired. So this is, I, I found it frustrating, but also a helpful reminder that those numbers are not there in the Bible. They're there to help us, but they weren't what God wrote down. So let's take a look. Let's start with this first. What I'm going to try to do is sum up this message. So we're going to kind of touch on each one of these disputations, but not be able to dig into every verse. Otherwise, we'll be here for three more days. Um, so I'm going to try to sum them up and, and give you the flavor of what's going on in each one and see how that leads us. Where does that point us to Christ? How, does that, how are we anticipating Jesus in these? So the first disputation, he starts out by saying, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau your brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. So the way it starts out, the first thing out of Malachi's mouth is, I have loved you. God himself is speaking to the nation Israel. He's speaking to his people. He said, I love you. And the people's response, as Malachi reports it, is, how have you loved us? Stop for a second, God. Look at our situation. We're barely hanging on here. 
We barely have enough people in Jerusalem to keep the thing secure. We barely have enough people out in the countryside to provide food. And our enemies are all around us, nagging at us constantly, threatening us. They're tattling on us to the, the king of Babylon. There's no David on the throne. Lord, how have you loved us? Really? Look at our situation. Is this love? And so God reminds them. He tells them very carefully, this is how I have loved you. And he says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So what is that? The people might be tempted to go, well, what does that have to do with it? <laughs> They're long dead and buried. There's a lot more to that than it appears. What he's saying is, I have chosen Jacob. I have fastened my love on Jacob. And Esau, I cut off. Now, Esau would be the nation of Edom, which is to the south and to the uh, east of Jerusalem. In, in, in the desert on that other side of the, the Dead Sea, that would be the nation of Edom. So what happened is Abraham has children. He has Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael's cut off and sent away. God says, I'm going to bless you through Isaac. Isaac ha gets married to a woman named Rebecca. And while she's pregnant, she's like in turmoil. She's just being tossed around by these two kids fighting in her belly. And he, God comes and announces, you're going to have two children. There's two sons in your womb, and they're going to be two nations. And the lesser, the, or the greater will serve the lesser. So that was the prophecy. And what happened was Jacob and Esau grew up. Jacob got the birthright. Esau got cut off. And as Jacob grew into a nation, Esau moved away, and he formed the country of Edom. Um, Edom, by the way, means red, because when, when Esau came out, he was all hairy and very red. So this is red to the south and to the uh, east. So what's going on is God is saying, look, I, I have fixed my love on you. And, and Jacob, you've grown into this big nation. And Esau, I've hated. And they've grown into a big nation. And look what became of them. So yeah, you've got enemies surrounding you. But look at what I can do. So if you look at the history of Edom, um, when Israel left Egypt, Edom denied them passage. They, they, they went to Ed the king of Edom and they said, can we just cut through? We promise not to leave the road and we won't consume the land or anything. We just need to kind of cut through this corner of your country. And the king said no. And God didn't forget it. God remembered that. So since they wouldn't let them through, God eventually handed Edom over to David. So D David, at one point in 2 Samuel 8, 14, it says that David established garrisons in Edom. And you don't establish garrisons in a country that you're at war with. You try to. What this means is that David is now ruling over Edom by that point. So Edom has come underneath them. And when you get to the end of the kings, that's Second Chronicles at the, toward the end, what it says is that Edom was under Israel's rule, but they revolted. So from the beginning of the kings to the end of the kings, Edom had been under Israel. They had been under their rule. This is what it means when God says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. And the, the greater will serve the lesser. The firstborn will serve the, the secondborn. The strong one will serve the weak one. That's exactly what happened as God established these nations. So when the question comes up, how have you loved us? Look at what I have done to Edom. Look at what became of Esau. They're serving you. Or at least they were until you became so unfaithful that they got cut off. So what the prophet is telling them is that this is how God established his covenant love. He made his covenant with Abraham. He said he would, he would bless them. And before the children were even born, God had decided, I have fixed my love on this, this child. So Israel's doubting God's covenant care for them. How can this be love if, if we're suffering so badly? Now, the way this gets picked up in the New Testament, Paul uses this passage in, um, in Romans chapter 9 to ask the question. He, he, he raises the question. He's been talking in Romans up till chapter 9 about the strength, the power of God's gospel, the wonderful message of, of everybody is a sinner. Even the Jews are sinners, but God is going to save them. So he gets to this question in chapter 9. He says, well, wait a minute, why aren't all Jews believers then? And it's kind of an important question because we're saying if these are God's people 
and Jesus came for them, then why aren't they all believers? Why aren't they all trusting in, in, in Jesus? And so Paul uses this, this uh, statement from Malachi to explain what's going on. He says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So Israel is not all Israel, is what he's saying. And then he looks at this example. Israel is, is uh, Jacob's name. God renamed him Israel. And what he says is, before the children had done anything good or bad, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So it's interesting the way Paul picks that up. And instead of looking at two nations, he takes that and he applies it within a nation. And he says, now hold on for a second. Don't forget, Abraham had two children. He had Isaac and he had Ishmael. Isaac was the child of promise. He was the one that I said I would bless. He said, he's the one I said, through this child will you, the nations be blessed. And Ishmael, he's legitimately Abraham's son, and I cut him off because he was a work of the flesh. You didn't wait on me. You took a handmaid and you, and you got her pregnant. So Paul draws that out. He says, there are those who are works of the flesh, and, those who are those, and there are those who are those of faith. So when he looks at the nation Israel, he says, why aren't all Jews saved? Because some of them are not really Israel. They're not really living the way the patriarchs did. They don't trust God the way they're supposed to. So they're cut off. And, and, he says, and Paul says, look, it's not as though the word of God has failed. God is able to determine who he's going to save. Just like he, he had the complete sovereignty, the complete, uh, he was completely right in choosing either Isaac or, or, or either uh, Jacob or Esau. He, he did it, and then he accomplished all these great things. He does the same thing within Israel, is he's able to pick who will be his people and who will not. So he says, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated, and he applies it within the nation. See, Jake, Judah's security is not based on what they can see. They're looking around and they're saying, we can't guard our gates. We can't, um, we can't keep enough people on staff to make sure that the alarm sounds reliably every single time. How have you loved us? And, and what God is telling them through this is he's saying, I work sovereignly over nations. Surely I can keep your gates safe. I work sovereignly within nations. I will call who I will call, and they will be secure. So that's that first part is this covenant love. For us, Jesus is the one who secures God's covenant love on our behalf. So though we may look around us and say, it's not looking too good right now. The church is meeting a lot of opposition. What we can say is, but look at how God has been steadfast to his people over all the nations. Jacob I have loved. Esau I have hated. Esau has become a horror. It's become a byword. But Jacob has been established. So that's, the, that's where it begins to point us to Christ is, this idea of God's electing purpose in his people. He's going to save and he's going to keep saved. So the second disputation comes up in uh, verses 1, 6 through 2, 9. And this is about honoring God. So here's kind of the nub of the thing. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those things that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. He will accept you. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? So the nation is not doing well. They're poor. Now, when you have a huge flock, it's not going to kill you to go out and find the best animal out of that flock and bring it in and sacrifice it. You've probably got three or four other really good animals that will do. But when your flock's diminished and you look at it and you go, I got this one ram who's really producing. He's really strong. He's, he's, he's the one I want to breed the most. I can't take that thing and offer it on sacrifice. I can't take one of these ewes and bring it to the temple and offer it as a sacrifice. The little one, the runt, 
the one that broke his leg, let's take that. And it wasn't because they were saying, well, I just want to be stingy. It was, you know, looking at it pragmatically, I can't afford this, Lord. This is, this is too hard for me. But God says, try that with your governor. Slide that onto his table when he sees that broken hip. When he, when he sees that, that blind animal that you lead in and go, here, we got something for you. Is he going to be happy about that? Why would I be happy with that? The way God explains it, he says, you have polluted me. You have polluted sacrifice with these diseased animals. And that's, that's the problem, is God is, is talking here about um, honoring him above everything else. Will you trust him? So Leviticus 22.22, that should be easy to remember, says that it's not okay to offer blind animals. That, that's not cool. Um, it wasn't just the problem with the people bringing the blind animals. The problem also resided in the temple because when the animal came up, the priest accepted it. What should have happened at that point where the priest doing their job was the priest would go, no, you can't bring a blind animal. We can't offer that. They should have inspected it and turned it right around. The people should have never brought it to begin with, but the priests are taking it. And so that's why God gets to the priests and he says, you have polluted me because you're accepting these substandard offerings from the people. So what happens is he, he begins to rail on the priest because the priests are not living up to their calling. And, and, and in that section, he explains what their calling is. What are they supposed to do? They are supposed to be the ones who bring the law, who explain the law to the people and say, this is how we will do this. That was their responsibility, and they're not doing it. But what's interesting is in that section, he doesn't say, I'm breaking the covenant with Levi. I'm cutting off Levi. Levi's gone. If you guys aren't going to follow the rules, I'm just cutting you off. He doesn't say that. What he says is that they have sullied his covenant with Levi, but he doesn't say it's done, it's gone. And so how does this then point us to Christ? Well, in Hebrews, we're told that Jesus is the better sacrifice and the better king, or the better sacrifice and the better high priest. He offers a sacrifice that it's not blind, that's not broken, that's not substandard. As a matter of fact, he offers the sacrifice that is the best that could possibly ever be. He offers his own body. The perfect, sinless son of God offers himself as the sacrifice. So this is how it reads in Hebrews, starting in Hebrews 9.15. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant. So it's interesting, back in Malachi, he doesn't say, I'm going to cancel the covenant with Levi. It's over. What he does is he says, he holds off and, and later when we get to Hebrews, he says, the entire Mosaic covenant is going to be turned over because there's a better high priest, because there's an offering that doesn't just temporarily take away sins. There's an offering that's coming that's going to actually atone for sin. So while they're messing up the image, while he's calling them to be faithful with what they've been told to do, there's always this promise that there is a better way. There is something more than these priests messing up these offerings. There's, a, there's an offering that's going to be perfect and always be acceptable. So God doesn't cancel that covenant. He overturns the entire Mosaic covenant. So that's, what, that's what's at heart here is honoring God, honoring God and what he's called you to do. So the next disputation is he... he disputes with them about faithfulness in marriage. This is 2.10 through 16. And this is how he introduces it. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord has witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion, and your wife by covenant. 
So what, what the next problem is, is the people are saying, why isn't God blessing us? Why isn't, and he, he says, because you're not being faithful in marriage. And, and this was one of the major issues that Ezra and Nehemiah dealt with was the issue of marriage. As they're trying to reconstitute the, the temple worship, as they're trying to get it stood back up, they need Levites who can serve in the temple. They need priests, sons of Aaron, who can serve in the temple because that's what the law told them. And so when they, they begin to look at who they have, they're asking questions, can you prove that you're from the tribe of Levi? Can you prove that you're a son of Aaron? And as people begin to document their, their lineage, what they find is some of these folks have married outside women. They've married women from the other nations. And so Ezra and Nehemiah are pretty upset about this. Ezra in, in uh, chapter 10, verse 2 says, And Sakaniah, the son of Jehael, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So this one man comes up and says, we have a problem, Ezra. We've married other women. We've married outside the tribes of Israel. And, and then he offers hope, and they, they come up with a plan on how to deal with it. So here's a question. Is that racism? That, that Israel would look and say, well, you can't marry her because she's another people, so you have to put her away. Is that racist? It's not racism because, first and foremost, the Bible knows only one race, the human race. There is no word in the Bible for race. There is seed, which would be offspring, so this family versus this family, but there is nothing in the Bible that says these are the human race and these are subhuman races. It's not there. God looks at everybody as his people. We all come from one father, right? Abraham is our father. So there's only one race. There's not multiple races. So often in the Bible, if you see the word race, it's got a bad lineage and it should be changed. It, it, it doesn't exist in Hebrew or Greek and it shouldn't be there. Where the term race came in was actually from racist approaches in the, in the early part of the American history. Is We can't enslave other people, if they're humans, if they're brothers and sisters, so they must be another race. Some of the Puritans said, God has multiple images. And some of the images are good and some of them are less good. And so we can enslave those less good images. And, and that's where this idea of race came from. So when God says to Israel that you're not allowed to intermarry with other people, he's not saying you're the pure and perfect race. He doesn't even use the word race. What he says is, you're offspring of Abraham, and I have a plan for you. So that's not racism as you would think of racism. There is a purpose. There's a reason for Israel to not intermarry at that point in history. And so in Deuteronomy 7, Moses explains. He says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters or your sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Why? Because you're the superior race, you're the, the perfect race that, that's going to, you know, the master race that's going to rule the world. No, he says, for they would turn, you, turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So here's the problem is God is breaking into an idolatrous world, a world filled with idols. They worship anything, whether it's in the sky or crawls on the ground, they got it set up and they're worshiping it. He enters into that and carves out a people for himself and reveals himself to them and gives them his laws to make them different, to make it clear they don't worship the God of this hill or the God of that country. They worship the God who created it all. So the danger with intermarrying was not, you're going to sully the race. It was, I'm bringing something through you. If you marry like that, you're going to be led astray. And boy, didn't we see that with Solomon, the wisest man in the world? He followed after false gods. So what was the promise there? The promise was the seed, the offspring. God had told Abraham, through your seed, the nations will be blessed. So he starts with Abraham and he says, this is where I'm beginning, but my plan includes the whole world. But it's going to be through your seed, something coming from you, that's going to bring this blessing to the whole world. And so the way Paul explains it back to Romans chapter 9 in verse 5, 
I love the way he words this. I tweaked it a little bit, and I'll, I'll explain why I did. He says, to them belong the patriarchs, the Jews. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So why did God institute Abraham's children as a separate group of people, a separate family line? Because through them would come the Christ. He would be the one who would, who would rule over them. Now, I, the part I tweaked is it says, to them belong the patriarchs and from their seed. This is how the ESV translates it. There is no word seed in there. There is no word for race in there. What it says is from there, T-H-E-I-R, from there comes them, comes the, the Christ. So I, I take that to mean from them, from this group of people. So this is the problem. This is why God is angry with Israel at this point, is you guys are diluting, you're mixing up the, the family line that I intend to bring the Christ from. Now it's Advent, so if... Uh, you look at the beginning of the Gospels, you'll notice you get Jesus' genealogy. And guess what? It's a wreck. <laughs> there are foreign women in there. Ruth, who is a Moabitess, is in there. Tamar, who is not a Jew, is in there. So you get these other people mixed in. But what God is saying is, don't go out and do that intentionally. Don't go out, because if you do, not only are you going to mix that race in with this group, that family line with this family line, you're also going to bring their gods with you. And that was the problem. That's why Ruth could be welcomed in. What did she tell Naomi? I'm never going to leave you. Your God shall be my God. Your people shall be my people. And that was the picture. That was the image that God was trying to preserve. When Christ comes, now the nations come in. And our God is their God. Our God is his God. Our Father is his Father. So that was the problem with this, this marriage faithfulness. Now, I have this theory, and I could be wrong, but I don't think I am, but I could be wrong. Um, I think what was going on is in Ezra and Nehemiah, there's this really strong focus on who we are as a nation. They're trying to make sure that they get qualified priests and qualified Levites working in the temple. They're trying to make sure that the land reverts to the right families and not mixed groups and stuff. And so there's this kind of, you know, you're not allowed to be married to other people thing going on. And, and they kind of take a dim view of the nations around them because the nations around them are really harassing them. If you remember in Nehemiah, they had to actually build the wall with a, a spear in one hand and a trowel in the other. That's, try working like that. Imagine going out in your front yard to, to uh, clip your hedges and your neighbors attack you so much you've got to stand there with, with a gun in one hand and a, and a hedge trimmer in the other. I mean, that's kind of what it was like. So there's this inherent distrust of the surrounding nations. And my theory is that never really went away. It kind of baked into the national psyche so that when we get to the New Testament, now you've got the, the Pharisees going, well, you have to wash your hands when you come back from the market because you may have touched something that a Gentile touched. That would be terrible. You'll be defiled. They, they would look at Gentiles standing in the court of the Gentiles and be suspicious of them. They would barely tolerate the, the God seekers who would come to synagogue with them. And I think it starts with Ezra and Nehemiah, not because Ezra and Nehemiah did it wrong. I think they forgot to turn that switch off as a nation. They forgot to say, okay, we're secure. Now, what are we supposed to be doing with these folks around us? So that, that's kind of my theory. But the point was, this was who Christ was going to come through. This was the promised Messiah. And that's why we don't want Israel to disappear into the religions around them. They have to remain distinct. So the next disputation in uh, 2.17 through 3.5 is about divine justice. And this is the kind of the nutshell of it. He says... You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delivers them, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So, again, their position in the world is they're under siege. They are a minority people trying to reestablish their, their nation, which once was great. It spanned the entire region. But now they're cut off and they're, they're diminished and they're small. And not all the Jews are returning, by the way. There's a lot that remained scattered throughout the world. 
And so they're, they're, they're kind of focused in on this and they're going, well, where is the God of justice? Where is justice in this? You see, one of the problems that Ezra and Nehemiah were dealing with was the richer folks in Israel would loan to the poor. And not only would they loan to the poor, but they would exact huge interest. So they would, they would go to the poor who are out trying to just farm the field, say, hey, you know what? We need a few shekels so we can get some wheat into the field this week. And the rich would say, well, that's fine. Um, I'll take your daughter and three quarters of what you bring in from the field. It was that kind of exploitation. And so the people, the common people are looking around going, Lord, where's justice in any of this? They're not supposed to be doing these things. Ezra and Nehemiah bitterly complained about them treating their fellow countrymen that way. And so the people are asking, Lord, where is justice? And that's why God says, you have wearied me by asking these questions. So where is justice? Malachi answers almost immediately. Listen to what he says. This is what, what uh, Fernando read for us. He says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So where is the God of justice? The God of justice is on his way and he's going to come and he's going to stand in his temple because that's what he says. You notice how the... the, the um, Pronoun switches. He says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And Lord there is not Yahweh, it's, it's Adonai. It's, it's the generic term for Lord. He will come to his temple. So this, this Lord is going to show up. But first, a messenger is going to come before him and prepare the way. So the Lord, Adonai, is going to come into his temple. The God of justice is going to arrive. He's going to refine. He's going to cleanse. You remember what, what um, Fernando read this morning? He's going to come with a refiner's fire, like gold you'd put in a, in a furnace, and you'd heat it up, and you'd let the goop uh, float up to the top, and you'd scrape that off, and what would be left is this pure, beautiful gold. And a fuller was a, a laundry person. And the fuller would take the clothes and would beat them and use different chemicals and try to get them as clean and white as possible. And that's the picture of this messenger who's going to come. He's going to refine and he's going to purify. And so what Matthew 11.10, Mark 1.2, and Luke 7.27 all cite this and apply it directly to John the Baptist. So this is John the Baptist coming to purify the nation, to get things cleaned up, to get things ready. And who does he prepare the way for? The Lord who comes into his temple. Jesus came into the, when Jesus came into the temple, what, what did he do? He flipped over tables, he took ropes, and he beat people because they had turned it into a mini mall. They pulled, turned the, the inner courts of the temple into a strip mall where they're buying and selling. And so that's that picture of that refining. And, and it was aimed at the priests, too, because the priests allowed that, just like they allowed under um, Ezra and Nehemiah these blind and, and lame animals. The priests are doing the same thing in Jesus' time. They haven't changed. They've turned the temple worship into a marketplace. They're going to reject animals that were probably uh, acceptable because now you've got to go change money so the Romans get some money. You've got to go buy it from these Gentiles in the courts so they get some money. We get a kickback from all of that, then we'll take your offering. That was the picture. That's why Jesus was so mad when he went in there. He came in like a fuller, like a refiner, to purify and to cleanse. We'll come back to some of that in a moment. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. We'll keep going on that instead. How's that? So all of this starts, this, this disputation, this whole thing starts with a tremendous promise. He says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God doesn't change. He's not going to say to Israel, well, you know, I chose you and I rejected Esau, but, you know, it worked out real well, so I'm changing my mind. He says, no, I don't change. My purposes stand throughout history. Therefore, you're not consumed. And the word consumed there, um, it's, it's a little tricky to translate. In other places, it means brought to an end. And it can be like successfully brought to an end, like the end of the harvest or the end of building the temple, something like that. But generally speaking, overall, it's a negative term. Brought to completion, brought to destruction, finished. 
So what he's telling Israel is, you guys stink. Really, you're terrible. Have you been listening to what I've been saying? But I don't change. I'm not going to change my mind and go, ah, we're tired of you guys. We'll try to eat them next. I don't change. Therefore, you're not consumed. I will bring to completion what I've said I'm going to do in you. And this is, again, God's covenant promise, his covenant love towards his people. That's why he's so mad at the beginning about why are you doing this? I'm offering my covenant love to you. So then the, the next disputation is about tithing. And he says in, um, he says in verses 7 and 8 in chapter 3, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from me, from my statutes, and not, have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will men rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? in your tithes and your contributions. So that's when he starts with that tremendous promise about he will not change. He, he's going to stick to what he said. He's sticking with his covenant faithfulness. But the people are looking at it and going, but we can't afford to give you what we're supposed to give you. We don't have enough to live on. What God says is, try me. Just, just try me and see if I don't bless you. If you will be faithful in what I've called you to do, will I not multiply your harvest? Won't I make it great? Won't there be enough for you and for what I'm asking? I'm asking 10%. That's all. Try me. So that's his, his message to them. And where this fits in with Jesus is Jesus fed 5,000 people with a couple of fish and a couple of loaves. Remember that story? And then in Mark chapter 6, Mark goes on and says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd, the 5,000 he just fed. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. So the first thing he does is he takes a little bit of food, multiplies it, and feeds 5,000 people. The next thing he does is he walks on the water towards them. And in, in, in our Monday group, we were talking about this. Isn't it something he's walking past them, <laughs> like he's going to go past? You know, you don't see many people out in the middle of the lake of Ga the Sea of Galilee walking on the water. I think we would notice that you were there. You know, it's kind of hard to miss. So they, they, they yell out because they think it's a ghost. They're terrified. They're, they're having a hard night at sea. And when he gets into the boat, the, the sea calms. A whole bunch more can be said about that. I'm going to let it sit. Instead, this is what Mark says. This is Mark's interpretation. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Wait, so walking on water and loaves. I'm, I'm not sure what the connection is there. Here's what the connection is. They had just seen Jesus provide for them on the mountain. This food that never ran out. They just kept pulling food out of baskets and fed everybody more and more and more and more and more. Now they get out on the sea and they're afraid they're going to get swamped. We may not make it to the other side. And Jesus comes in and he, he reminds them of the baskets. Didn't, didn't you remember that? Am I, going to let, am I going to save you on the mountainside just to kill you in the middle of the sea? So that's the, the kind of imagery that is going on with Malachi when, when Malachi says, just try me. Bring in the tithe and see what I do to your crops. Be faithful with what I've given you and see if I don't bless you anyway. And then the last disputation is about fearing God. He says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge of walking in, or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers will not only prosper, but they will put God to the test and they will escape. 
So what Malachi says is the people are grumbling. They, they don't think God will hear them. They, they grumble. The, the people who don't want to follow him say, you know, hey, you guys, do we really want to stick with this God thing? It's not working out real well. It's not working for us. Maybe we should just ditch him. Uh, you know, I hear Moloch is pretty cool. Um, maybe we should do that. They think God can't hear them as they grumble, as they complain about this. But there's others that, that come up later that feared the Lord. And they gather together and they talk together. We don't get what they're, what they're saying, but you know it must be good because they fear the Lord. And God says he heard them and he responds to them. He tells them he's with them. He's going to hold on to them. So the idea there is this idea of fearing the Lord. Um, we, we often think, I can get away with this in private. There's no such thing as private for you. God is with you. So what you say in secret, God can hear. It's, it's not like you ever are cut off and left alone. That's not just the bad stuff, which preachers love to harp on, is what do you do alone is, is your character. That's also the good stuff. That's when you're being faithful in that time when nobody's looking. God's pleased with that. And, and that's where he's happy is to hear his people walking with him, even when they think they're alone. So what do you, the question then I think this brings up is when you serve God, when you're doing what he's called you to do, what are you expecting? What do you want out of that? I'm, I'm coming to church regularly, Lord. I'm reading my Bible every day. And therefore I expect fill in the blank. I can't do that for you. You've got to do that. What is it that you really in your heart of hearts think you're going to get from doing that? God's going to be happy with me and bless me with economic prosperity or make my spouse better looking or give him a sense of humor that's not so corny or, you know, what is it that you expect God to do from that? What you, what the Bible tells you is you will get more of God. Will that make you happy? That's why we serve the Lord. That's why we fear the Lord is so that we get more of the Lord. And all these things will be added unto you. So now we're in the epilogue, the last section of the book. Actually, verses 4 through 6 kind of just pop out. They don't fit with the rest of the book. They, they kind of stand on their own. But here's what they say, and it's really super important. Starting in verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a, degree, a decree of destruction. So how does this anticipate Jesus? Well, first of all, Zechariah, who was uh, John the Baptist's father, was explicitly told this was John the Baptist. In, John, in Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, the angel says, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to, wisdom of the to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So immediately, you know this one applies, right? It's even in the Christmas story because the, the angel mentioned it to Zechariah. And that's true. I'm not going to say the Bible got it wrong. So if the Bible says it, that's what it is. But I think there's a little bit more to it as well, because we already heard about John's role coming and preparing the way in, in chapter 3, at the beginning of chapter 3, right? There's more to this, and I always skip this part of the, the epilogue. It starts with, remember the law of my servant Moses. So who are the two people in the epilogue? Moses and Elijah. And what's the one place that's mentioned in this epilogue? Horeb. Now, when I think of the law of Moses, I think of Mount Sinai, right? That's where he got it. Actually, it was Mount Horeb, same name. And, and here's, here's what's going on. Horeb is where Moses first ran into the burning bush. He's up on Mount Horeb, and he's, he's taking care of the sheep, and he looks up, and he sees a bush on fire, and he keeps walking. He looks again, and he goes, that bush is still on fire, and it ain't been consumed. I'm going to go check that out. That was Mount Horeb. Then in, um, in uh, that was in Exodus 3, right at the beginning of Exodus 3. In Exodus 17, he's back at Horeb again. 
He's leading the nation out of Israel or out of Egypt. And he says, behold, God talks to him and says, behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb and I will strike that rock and water will come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So Horeb is, is pretty special. So far, we've got the burning bush. We've got now this, this rock that's struck and water comes out. And, um, and then in Deuteronomy, when Moses is kind of telling, reminding Israel of what's going on, this is what he says, only take care. This is uh, Deuteronomy 4, verses 9 through 13. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord of God, your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that, that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on earth and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain and, at the, and the mountain burned with fire to the heart of the heavens, wrapped in darkness and cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded to you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. So Horeb is where Moses sees the burning bush. Horeb is where they strike the stone and water comes out. Horeb is where they gathered to hear the Ten Commandments. Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. So that was Moses' connection with Horeb. What about Elijah? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah rose and he drank and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. This was right after he had that encounter with the priest of Baal. And he defeats the priest of Baal and you, and he, he, you figure this is a triumphant moment for him. Suddenly he knows his life is threatened and so he, he's told to run into the desert and he runs to Mount Horeb. What happened after that? Do you remember the rest of the story about Elijah? He's hiding in a cave for his life. Ravens come and bring him food. And finally he stands up and he steps out of the cave and he hears God speak to him. And when the first thing that passes by, it, it is a storm that is breaking rocks in half. And God was not in that storm. And then it was a mighty earthquake, and God wasn't in the earthquake. And then finally, this still small voice comes and speaks to Elijah. So both Moses and Elijah at Horeb had this encounter with God. They, they met him in a miraculous and a tremendous way. So this epilogue to the, to the book of Malachi actually is pointing to another event where Moses and Elijah are present on a mountain and God is displayed. This is from Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took, him, took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to him Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And the cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they were, no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So all of Malachi's message up to this point is promising it's calling for covenant faithfulness. It's calling for fear of the Lord. And in the end, what it promises is the covenant promise from the very beginning. I will dwell with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's what Jesus reveals to them in the transfiguration. As he says, Moses and Elijah were promised these things. They got a glimpse of it. They got a taste of it. Now they're seeing the reality of it. So this is how Malachi as a whole book is pointing us to the coming of Christ. It's all of these promises that God has made to Israel, even though in their weakest spot, they're doubting. In their weakest place, they're trusting their own power, their own strength, their own ability. And God calls them to stop doing that. Try me. Test me. When will the God of justice appear? He's coming. In 400 years, he'll be here. So that's Malachi's message. That's how Malachi prepares for Christmas is by anticipating all of these promises, which we see fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. 
Lord, we, we anticipate your next arrival, which will be just as glorious as your last. As a transfiguration, Peter promises us that we have something more sure than that transfiguration. And so, Lord, we, we pray for your return. And as we're anticipating Christmas, Lord, we're longing for your breaking into a fallen world to redeem it. Father, I pray that our, our time with the minor prophets would anticipate our hope in Christ by waiting for him to come. So, Lord, would you please come and be with us? Remind us, Lord, that even though we can't see what you're doing, you're still at work, you're still active. Remind us of your great promises, the great stories of the things you've done, so that we might hope in your future. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.